from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Ten seconds to go. 24-23 Saints. Vikings at their own 39. It's third down. Three receivers right, feel and left. Marshawn Lattimore, 12 yards from Adam. Case on a deep drop, steps up in the pocket. He'll fire to the right side, caught by Diggs. Stay oh, up. My God, oh my God! Oh my God! No way! Touchdown! Are you kidding me? It's a Minneapolis miracle. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. That, of course. The call from the New Orleans Saints-Minnesota Vikings divisional playoff game in the NFC last Sunday. Terrific way to kick off the to kick off the show today, hearing the call. We have all kinds of sports we're going to talk about over the next two hours. You can join the conversation. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. 1-844-942-7866. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Adi Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Shane is out and about. He will be back. You can also reach us if you'd like via email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall if you want to stay on top of the sports analytics world and what we're up to between the shows. That was a terrific game, fellas. An instant classic in the most legitimate use of the term. I'm curious your thoughts on that game, the rest of the NFL playoffs, and around the world of sports. Well, let's start with that game. And first of all, okay, it's great to be here, obviously. Uh, those were two tremendous... I mean, the, that was a great day of football, obviously, because of the other game that was played that day, which is the Jaguars-Steelers game. But thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, I can read here, the Vikings win probability before that play. I'm actually surprised it's this high, but was it 2.6% is what they had it as. That's right. I was extraordinarily surprised by that, because that's not that unlikely. It's not that unlikely. But here's what I thought while watching that play live. I thought... One in 40 is pretty unlikely. Come on, fellas. It's pretty unlikely, but... Here, I mean, but listen to that scream. One in 40 happened one in 40. It's one, not so well, often. I'm okay not, with one in 40. That's, that sounds about right to me. I mean, but, it's, it's right. categorically feels But here right. was my thought about the actual play on the field, was that this was a play that five or ten years ago would not have happened, and here's why. The fear... Of pass interference. That's right. Right. Changed the whole nature of that play. Ten years ago, this guy would have been drilled. He would have been probably hit while the ball was in the air. You touch this guy. I'll give I'll give the Vikings yeah, a lot of credit for the follow. Yeah. Regardless of what you did on that play, throw the ball to a place where either he gets out of bounds or if he's touched. It's a they're in field goal range, and, and then there's range. field goal range. Yeah. And actually, I didn't realize until I saw this, and thanks to Danielle Bruno for the replaying the call, that they were already at the 40-yard line, essentially. I thought they were farther back on the field until I read this. I knew they weren't at their own 20. I thought they were at the 25 or the 30. They only needed 20 yards, and the guy yeah. has hit a 57-yarder. So it's not like they were 40 yards away from field goal range. They were 20 yards away from field goal range. So that that's the but part. But it was a colossal mistake on the part colossal of the Vikings. I mean, he should have just tackled him, and that would have been that. Let him, let him was, catch it, and the that's ti- it. The timing was just off for him because he could, he had to stop, and it's unnatural Correct. to stop in those situations. It was it, I, I, I don't know what was what was going on beforehand, but it was he was clearly put in kind of a – he was in a tough spot because he he knew that he would interfere if he hit the guy, so he's gonna have to 
arrest his movement, and he was moving as fast as he could. So it's a little bit of a challenge. The, Eric, I want to push you on one thing. Do you think it's interference so much as there's so much, you know, around targeting and there's so much more protection of receivers when they're in vulnerable spots? I wonder to what extent that factored in. Even though it wasn't a classic targeting play, defensive backs must now be so much more aware that they have to be careful about hitting guys when they're in these when they're in these vulnerable positions. Maybe it doesn't apply here because he would have been hitting him, you know, mid-body or something. But it felt, it, you know, it's hard to understand the mindset these DBs must be in these days because of how they're officiated. Yeah, I didn't think this was, well, put this way, let's imagine it wasn't pass interference, but it was targeting. They're essentially still not really in field goal range then, unless you want the guy to kick a 63-yard field goal. And then the, the advantage there, at least from the Saints' point of view, is there would have been essentially one second. People forget this. If A great strategy for the defense near the end of games at certain places on the field is to continue to do penalties because you wind down the clock. So what... They don't replay the clock. If there's, if there's a, let's imagine the guy's not pass interference, but the guy's hit, speared, and so it's a 15 yard penalty. They don't go back to 10 seconds. It's one second. Matter of fact, there are plays where you should continue to pass interfere to use the clock. So pass interference is when you block the pass, and that causes they treat that as a completion. But you're talking about blocking, or no, no, no. What do you, what's what I'm referring spearing. I'm saying let's. <laughs> what Cade was saying was the guy is worried that maybe the guy goes up in the air, the receiver, yeah. and he's defenseless, which is a call they love to make now. The guy hits him with his helmet, hits right. him with his shoulder, but hits him in the head. It's a 15-yard penalty. Well, a 15-yard penalty from the 39-yard line gets you to the 46. It's a 63-yard field goal. But there's only one second then left on the clock because mm-hmm. the nine seconds have been used up. Mm-hmm. It can't end, as you know, on a defensive penalty. So there's going to be essentially one second. I have to imagine that win probability is much lower than 2.6% because mm-hmm. you have one final play. Don't you agree? You could strategically sure. use sure. penalties sure. to it's, wind down the it, clock. It, 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 Agreed. It's, Sounds like the end of a basketball game. Yeah, and it, what you have to do is get – you have to be in a situation where the players can shift out of their normal competitive mode Correct. and into that strategic mode. And it's not always the case that they can move back and forth like that. I mean, you get guys geared up to play ball and hit and stop, and, and then you ask them, okay, in this in this vital situation, change entirely to a different mode? It's challenging. Very, very tough to do. But that was that was just an extraordinary finish to a game. And I have to admit, when we talk about lifetime of players, the guy at the first thought in my mind is, I feel awful for Drew Brees. I feel absolute. I'm not a Saints fan. I'm not a Vikings fan. I have no horse in the race. I'm just thinking this guy's thrown for 70,000. He has a Super Bowl victory, so I don't feel too bad for him. But he's thrown for 70,000 yards. The guy played a beautiful game. In the last quarter, he shredded the vaunted Viking defense. Mm-hmm. I mean, he scored you know, 23 points or whatever the number was. 24 points, sorry. Basically, in a quarter, they were down 20, whatever it was, 23 to 0. All of a sudden, Drew, the, the Drew Brees woke up, threw for 350 yards. He basically threw for 200 yards and three touchdowns in a quarter. So I felt bad for Drew Brees. I, I, of course, it, happily he has a Super Bowl ring. If it, he does. If, if not for that, I would feel tragic. But the, the, the Vikings are historically exactly uh, I mean, has to be offset by how, how good you feel for the Vikings. They're not there yet. They've got two. No, games they to have win. to get through the, the Eagles. We can turn our attention to the Eagles. I, I actually listened to, to football this week, and it was nice to listen. Listen to, this. to it. Well, yeah, I was in the car on my way back on uh, on Saturday night. That's and so a I very had to baseball listen. traditionalist way it is. to consume and I, football. And, and I have to. It's actually not a good way to. Consume 
consume it. Baseball, you can consume very, very naturally by radio. You, you feel like you're missing everything. <laughs> what does by, that on, say on about baseball? <laughs> it says a lot about baseball. I'm not going to deny its its basic fundamental structure. You know, it would be the same. Great point. It's I would imagine the same is true about. We agree in football, lots of things happen away from where the ball is. In baseball, the pitcher's got the ball. Pitcher's winds up. Pitcher's thrown to the cat. All right, we got where the ball is. You know, and what's the exactly. left fielder doing? He's standing no, there waiting I, for the I, ball. No, to but come here's the other thing. Him. It's almost like representational theory. The idea is that I've seen enough baseball games when I listen to the radio, I can watch it in my head, and uh, I'm not point. missing what's happening. That's in football. Great point. So interesting. It's, in he's football, right. I, you know, every every play, every 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 situation is essentially different enough to warrant watching it. Right. I've I've had this experience watching baseball. I watch it infrequently enough that when I watch it for the first time in a year or whatever, I'm always like struck by the experience and the. Last time I did this, I was struck by, you know, midseason last year or something. I was struck by how you're watching, when you watch baseball, you see 100% of the action on the field. In no other sport is that the case. In no other sport, you're like, you, you know right. you're missing lots. In baseball, you're like, nope, I got it, 100%. Right it, would also be, it would also be interesting, you'd use your idea of representation theory. How many different, let's call it exemplars or prototypes, would it take to cover Ninety percent or ninety-five percent of the things that happen in baseball, because rarely, by the way, when I watch a baseball game now. But I've been watching baseball games for forty-five years, forty-seven years of my fifty. Do I say, "Oh man, I've never seen that before"? Not that Very often. Rare. What, but, we're, what but, we're talking saying, about? Could you take? Could you, you could. take? This is data compression, right? It's data, uh, Eric, it's absolutely. Uh, that's great what data I was going to get to. So, go, yeah. yeah, please. I mean, tell so our basically, audience. the idea. I mean, one of the one of the huge innovations in information theory was to understand how to compress text uh, information and and store it very very um, very very succinctly and with with less infor- with uh, less storage usage than, you, than it ordinarily takes and baseball has got to have the highest compression rate of any sport and essentially what you're saying is is that there are matches historically of, of almost everything that we see and you can look it up in a database and keep the database in your in your memory bank and you just simply play the tape does and, this explain and, why it's it's so easy to take in baseball while doing other things absolutely like you can yes. work and eat and and you can talk write novels <laughs> <laughs> but i think i'm just, and still take it all no of course what's interesting about your comment Adi, is it's not just interesting i think from a mathematical perspective but it's interesting from a you know why you can listen to it on the radio and it's still mm-hmm. vivid you know maybe you remember memories in baseball more easily because i imagine if i we had a cognitive psychologist in here now they would say oh so now you only have to your ability to retrieve it in your memory is more easy so that's why in some ways it's a great example of you know as as you pointed out that listening to baseball very different than listening to football yeah, I, I think actually this is a, this has been a really pr- interesting productive conversation i got actually learned something new about <laughs> baseball during during this um, imagine that so, uh, you know, it, it is one of my – I still enjoy listening to I – mean, it is special listening to any sport on, on, on radio. Golf? I've I, uh, I listened so to golf. Good. I have. Yeah, like I driving have across the country, listening to calls of U.S. Open. Um, they bounce around pretty good. They, it, at least it keeps you up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hockey, I think of, I think of the, this great, this famous Rick Jenneret call of a playoff game between the Sabres and the Bruins when the Sabres swept the Bruins to win a playoff series for the first time in years on an overtime goal. And Rick Jenneret's the play-by-play announcer, famous there in Buffalo. But he, his call is so – it's called Mayday because Brad May made this – defenseman made this breakaway goal. It's called, and people in media and sports know this call by, by – and, and that's only – you only get that really – I mean, not only, but usually you get that on the radio. Usually when you see a great call like this, you will – you want to go cover you know, who go to the broadcast of the of the of the team's 
feed, right? Or whoever's broadcasting for the side that, that won the play and find out what, what that sounded like. But but I'm reminded, and now now people are remembering this, that the origin the origin of the term Hail Mary was Roger Staubach. Absolutely. And you forget yeah, this the Vikings. Week, everyone's thinking about it now, but it, usually that's a hard thing to come up with. The origin of the term, people always call it a Hail Mary. Well, it's because of this 1975 playoff game between the Cowboys and the Vikings. And my memory of that was hearing, I don't remember the play being called. I had the foggiest memory, but I, I, we, I definitely heard that it happened on the radio driving in the car. And same with the Dr- Dwight Clark catch, the catch right. against the Cowboys. I listened to that in Spanish on the radio as my mom was bringing me back from one part of town to another because the only thing, she ripped me away from the TV and the only channel we could find it on was a Spanish channel. And Dwight Clark made the catch against the Cowboys. I'm like, I don't know, 10 years old or something. But it also shows you, uh, and the other thing I was thinking about that play, since that's the way we started off the show, was like a whole series of factors had to have been there for that even to possibly happen. Like if there's, my guess is if there's three seconds on the clock instead of 10 seconds on the clock, that play comes out entirely different. If they're at the 20-yard line or the 25-yard line instead of essentially the 40-yard line, that play comes out entirely different. In other words, I, w- I always try to think about this. How many paths to winning were available still left for the Vikings? Now, you can always, three guys could miss a tackle, obviously. It could have been a 10-yard pass over the middle. Three guys miss tackles, the guy breaks it. Lots of things could happen. There were so few paths to winning in this scenario where it's interesting. That's another thing I was thinking about. Like, how many options were there to the Vikings winning this game? That's why, to me, maybe this is the wrong way to think about it. That's it why I like look at the wrong... 2.6%. I look at it and I say, how... let's go back to your – I've got a large Eric, deviation. Eric, thought... How many small things had to add up for this to happen? Number one – Two, but Eric, in this case, I feel like more. this is exactly the exactly the wrong way to think about it. And there's an infinite number of small things that could have happened, and we see the one thing that did happen, and we have a hard time conjuring all the other well, possibilities. Let's look at it. Let's look at it backwards from the from the right right before the the play was actually played. What are the opportunities? What could they do? You got ten seconds left. You're on the forty yard line. You got to get into field goal range. Do you have any other choice other than throw a, essentially a hail mary? Let's just let's just open that up. Uh, hook and ladder, you know. Some there's going to be some kind of pass play, and it doesn't have to be a straight up hail mary. This wasn't a hail mary. Well, no. it was close to it. I mean, no, it, no, it was, no, it was, no, it was no, a no, sideline pass. No. It was an out pattern. It was a twenty hail yard mary out. Is a is a is a bomb to the end zone. Bomb right. to the end zone. Okay. And by the way, you could have chosen to do that from the forty yard line as well. My guess is the quarterback can probably throw the. I I, I don't know this. I'm. I don't even know if Case Keenum can throw the ball that far, but probably <laughs> I don't not. Know if Drew Brees can throw the ball that far. I, now. I, I, so a sixty-yard throw, which more than that by the time you drop back. So it's just, correct. That's, that seems maybe potentially Keenum's, too far. Keenum's not throwing that to the end zone. No. Okay. So but he also wasn't trying to. They were just trying to get in the field goal. No, no. no, no, no. We're, we're, what I'm trying to, to articulate here is what are the possibilities here? You said there's a, there's so many, right? I'm saying there are. I'm not sure there's really anything other than what he did. No, I mean, but all the things. I'm not saying they could have tried many things strategically. I'm saying an infinite number of things could have happened on a play that they tried i mean so this this no, db bends bent you know ducks essentially i mean guys can slip it got, right I mean, what, what, what i'm trying to six say is different that two things had to happen no, no, but something I, had no, to happen on the offensive side and something had to happen on the no, defensive but that's side. simplifying it and that's why you i needed think, both no, not no, just no, one i understand that but i'm f- framing it differently i'm thinking okay what could have ended this play number one the saints pass rush could have gotten to the quarterback and sacked him Okay, on many plays where it's third and ten, let's look at the baseline rate where the quarterback gets sacked. Okay, that's number one. Number two, maybe Case Keenum throws. Maybe that play the same way it happens, but the ball gets thrown out of bounds. 
Case Keenum's not a great thrower of the football, so he had to throw the ball where the guy could have caught it. I'm not even yet on the defensive side well, of the you're ball. Well, ju- you're just Number- breaking down all the all the paths to No, but that's what I just said I was doing. Right, I was saying, I'm going to say a whole sequence of micro-events had to happen for that to happen, for the play to happen the way it did. I'll, I'll, I'm just saying, I'm making a point that you guys have to agree with. In fact, y'all are the, y'all are the hyper-rational, sophisticated we do, we people. Do agree I mean, with the denominator point. is huge, yes. and, it's, and it's unpacked, and so we don't think of it as huge as it is. But what I'm what I'm arguing, I was missed. I was surprised when I heard the two point six percent. I mean, it's and what I and I don't know that much about football. I don't have a good intu- intuitive sense of what's likely and what's not. But I would have imagined that at this when you're you have ten seconds left and you're that far from the end zone, the probability is less than one in forty. And when you break it down, though, maybe it's not. I mean, maybe it's not because what is the probability of making a completion? There are a lot of ways to get in there. You need it. They, all they needed was a, a, a field goal at the end. And would that have tied the game? I don't know. No, would have won. The that would have won the game. So twenty yards, twenty-five yard play, get out of bounds. But let's it's be, not that unlikely. Let's be, right? uh, they don't, let's they don't be, have timeouts. It's true they don't. No, have No, but let's also be clear. It really is then a what you're saying is let's even say the path to winning is the twenty twenty-five yard. I suppose the guy had been knocked That's out. That's one path. Wait, wait. Guy still got to make a fifty-five yard field goal. True. So what we're actually saying now is there's a five or six percent chance. Because by the way, that's no more than fifty percent. It's probably forty percent. So now we are saying is there's a six or seven percent chance that they would have been a position to bring the field goal unit out and to try a winning field goal. I don't think I I stand by my statement. That number seems high to me. Obviously, I'm wrong because <laughs> this is this is not a model. I'm sure. I, maybe it's a model. Of course it's a model. Why does it have to be a model? Well, we, there could be lots of situations. Lots that, is overstating it. And of course they would... You don't would, think there could be in the hundreds? You don't n- think n- on no. a pure empirical frequency, what no. are the chances of a team Consider- winning the game from the 40 yards? Let's say between the... Th- I'm not saying now exactly put, the 39. Well, exactly. I'm going to bucket you'll, it to the 35 to the 45. You give me a ten, you'll give me a 10-yard window? Sure. Okay, but will you give me connect, a five-second window? You're going to connect it in some way. Will you give I mean, me a five-second window? What counts window? as a model? Because you've got to connect that with the next Not a bucket. model. Purely, I'm going to count a team is down by less than a field goal. You just goal. want an empirical, empirical in that Empirical frequency ten, estimator. You, you, will you give but me... But, Eric, that, you don't want to do that. No. You know, because you've, you've got numbers on both sides of that bucket, and so you want to connect it in some way, and now you're talking more about some kind of model. Why would you, why would you render it quite that simple? Why, well, why, I think if you're going to do it, you would do it with some kind of model. You I connect would do it. it. With you would borrow model. strength well, from no, buckets would, well, on both I, sides. I would do that after doing. I'll use a technical. I would first say what's. I would explore the data. I would see just non-parametrically. I would bucket the yardage. I would bucket the window and say what what's the empirical frequency? Not if it was three times, but in the history. I don't want to say the history of the NFL. Let's take the last five years of games in the NFL. If this has happened five hundred times in the no, empirical no frequency, way. you're, you're, you're no not way even close. So times. it's interesting how we're trying to approach this. So just to, for our <laughs> listeners, I think we're trying to say for myself to essentially calculate what we think is the probability. Roughly, and yeah. that's what we're, yeah. we're trying to do. So it's funny how you're, you're trying to look for situations that are similar. I'm actually trying to bring it up to a much higher level and say, where we have a lot of observations. Let's say, what is the probability of making a successful 20, 25-yard pass attempt with ability to get out of bounds? 
how often does that happen? I mean, that would l- allow us to look at, at five hundred uh, thousands of plays. At that part of the game, you can't do that. Okay, now I no know way. this is the objection. <laughs> no way. This is the nope. objection. No way. Eric, you're not being reasonable right now. Why? You, why does why, no, why does he no. get to select? Why does, why does he get to select? Why does Adi get to select a specific situation without taking the context into account? Well, you kill because it. He's, I mean, he just you went. You have I'm seven observations and he has thousands. Right. I don't have seven. <laughs> you have yes, you do. Very small. You Smaller think so. than you think you do. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Yeah, you do. Well, I think hundreds. No, not hundreds. No, where the game actually on the line like this, where a play will turn it around and not, no. This is Cade Massey. We're hosting Wharton Moneyball with my buddies, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradley. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six. We've been talking Minnesota, New Orleans. There were other games last weekend, as a matter of fact. What about those Eagles? They're hosting an NFC Championship game. How many times have they hosted an NFC Championship game? Eric, we rely on I, I, you. I'm going to say the answer. I, let me not go back to the 80s because I don't know when they went to the Super Bowl. Like when they went to the Super, Super Bowl, Bowl back era. in the. Well, they might have got to the no, Super Bowl. Bowl the, in the they, they may well have. I, I think in the Andy Reid era, this is what people criticize most about Andy Reid, is that I'm pretty sure three or four times Donovan McNabb led them to the NFC Championship game. Obviously, they went to the Super Bowl once. They lost to the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Three but or I'm four pre- times, really? But wow. I'm pretty sure they were the home field team. That's why people. It's not so much that the uh-huh. Eagles only made one Super Bowl. They weren't the underdog. They were the home. I'm pretty sure. I'm going to guess and say the Eagles have hosted. Well, I was at an NFC champion. Let me start with that. Okay. The last game ever played at Veterans Stadium, which I was at in 2002, was the NFC Championship game, Buccaneers at Eagles. The year the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl, the traitor, Buccaneers traitor. That's why you went to the game. The Buccaneers were here in Philadelphia. So I can tell you at least So you're suggesting 3? Maddie Maddie Dad says 4. Maddie Dad says 4. Okay, so four. we've hosted All right, so I, all right, 4. So they were decent in the se- in the 70s. They the Randall Cunningham 80s teams were good. We we need we probably ought to get more details on that. Do you believe more in Foles now? No. No. <laughs> I don't believe more in Foles. Did you think he was good? Uh, did he play well? The little RPO thing they got going is is they found something that works for him. Look, I, maybe this is the wrong way to think about it. As an Eagles fan, which I am an Eagles fan, I was happy when the Vikings won the game. Now, you could tell me someone that builds the Massey Peabody system, how much of an effect size, this is also what I was thinking when the game ended, do they say it's a better matchup for the Eagles? We don't do it at all. We've looked for matchups and can't find that it matters at all. We just go with strength Interesting. numbers. Interesting. The uh, lead article on sports in the Wall Street Journal today was all about matchups. Who wrote it? I don't recall, but it was about. But it was actually about the Vikings looking like a lot. No, the Jaguars looking a lot like the Giants and, and being. So I knew that Patriots was going to come. But would you yeah. agree to the following? Would you agree right now the Eagles are not a great offensive team? Yeah. I okay. Wait. Would you agree also if you had to measure whose offense do you have more faith in, the Saints or the Vikings? Who would you say? The Saints. The Saints. Yeah. Right. So the Eagles are playing a team that matches up better with them. That's the narrative, at least, that's being said right now. The Vikings are a defensive-oriented team, I, I, so I are the Eagles. They, I think and that, their strengths appear equal. In other words, they're, I, don't, I, I don't know if this is true in Massey Peabody, but it must be, because I know before the game was played, they said, if the Eagles play the Vikings, I'll make this up, we're a three-point underdog. If the Eagles play the Saints, we're a two-and-a-half-point underdog. So the, basically the strength parameters were the same of the two teams. Wouldn't you Conditional on that, would you? Most people are saying the Eagles would rather play a defensive-oriented team than an offensive-oriented team. I just think that there's a lot more to the narrative than there is to the actual truth there, that people love these matchup stories. It's a little wrinkle they can look very expert in. It allows them to 
say that they understand this game very in a nuanced way, and it's just not. But notice what I said. I said conditional on the strength parameter, and I assume Massey Peabody or most rating systems have a call an offensive strength and a defensive strength. Maybe you guys don't do it, but no, many. We, we do, of course, okay. We do. So let's condition on the fact that I think most te- most models have the strength parameters very similar for the Saints and the Vikings. Pretty similar. Reasonably similar. So, okay, I mean, so we're, can, we, we have them a point and a half. We have the Vikes a point and a half better. Oh, you do have them a little bit yeah, better. Okay, because yeah. the betting lines I know are only about a half point different. But okay, it's, they're within reason. Well, but, 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 but see, that, the Eagles are at home, so that's, they're, that's, they're picking that, up three but, points. But, that, but setting, that, setting that aside, so that makes the point really clear, though, because with the point and a half difference on the, on the, on the strength parameter, the overall power ranking, we would, if you're an Eagles fan, always say, well, I mean, it's close, but we'll take the Saints Absolutely. because they're a point and a half worse. And these matchup people are going, no, 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 you don't want the Saints. Their offense is going to kill you. Like, yeah, that's just a story. We'll take the right. weaker team. I was conditioning on, I thought they were equal in strength. I was saying conditional on the strength parameter, that's when it's legitimate to talk about matchup but differences. But now you've said the, ma- the no, matchup is less, less than a point less, and a half. It's, so it's like well, a knife edge. It's a knife edge. I was asking you the question, do you think the effect size we make for matchup zero. is we make zero? It, we make it okay. zero. I mean, it may be there somewhere, but it wasn't. It's never been enough to put in the model, and it's not for lack of looking. Now, basketball is a different thing. I mean, basketball, there's five guys. Matchups can start mattering. But in football, we've looked for it, and we've not been able to find it. So, so just so I understand what that means when you say put it in the model, does that mean where if you took, let's just take the simplest version. Let's imagine instead of just each team having one strength parameter, each team had two strength parameters, an offensive and defensive strength. So one way to build that into a model would be to take an interaction term between, okay, so that's what you've put that into the model, and there's no statistical power on it. That's right. All right, well, that's that's a great answer, then. That's what it but, is. I mean, then uh, there isn't. Although, oh, no, I mean, Enough. it's a very, it's a very hard thing to do. Once you put interactions in a model, there are many ways to do it. It becomes highly parameterized, yeah. and now in order to the, the field, the, the playing field becomes very steep because you really have to prove it now, yeah, that's right. and it gets really hard to do. Yeah. So, so to re to rephrase what Kate is saying about his model, we've tried it, and nothing has rose to the level of, of statistical significance. Doesn't mean it's not. It wouldn't have helped, but we that's decided right. not well, to. Well, you, 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 you would agree exactly to the right. fo- you would agree to the following, given. They haven't found it, and there's obviously only some degree of statistical power the model has. It's probably not as massive an effect as people that tell narratives want to believe, because as you know, yep. two parts are st- there are lots of parts of statistical power, but one is if it's a massive effect, you're going to likely see it, and so it can't be like it's, people say, "Oh, it's four point six. No way is it four point okay, six let me, let me let me let me let me piggyback off of that because I'm trying to make a, an important statistical lesson. There are two ways that this could come about, and I've seen this in, in say, the search for clutch hitting. It's the same, the same strategy. It could be that, that the matchup effect is small, but in every, every game it's a little bit, but it's really little, and therefore we can't see it. Or it could be that it's usually nothing, That's right. but every now and then it's really big. Now tell me how but you we find... can't tell the difference. Yeah. That's the problem. That's 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 the case that's really hard statistically when it's when very it's, when it, and and I don't know even know what to do about that. And so, so this is so if you want to turn around and say, well, the reality is that ninety nine times out of hundred matchups matters nothing, and every now and then it's huge. This is that huge case. Yeah, but you couldn't tell the, you can't, the data. You can't tell it. You can't and, tell them the but, data. But but that's exactly where people want to jump in. This is the that's problem right. with intuitive judgment. You you think that you see these exceptions. This is the well, exception. That's it. Well, let me ask you a question. Let's say. The, let me just push back a little bit, tiny bit on that. It's, but it's, I, I think the answer is you don't believe that you couldn't statistically find it if it exists. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say we laid out 100 games, okay, and you had a theory, whether it's mathematical, 
based on physics, based on the magic eight ball, doesn't matter. That this was the game. You're going to test a specific hypothesis. This is the game where you think the effect is going to be large. It, the end wouldn't be big enough to. Well, have that's power. my point. Yeah, you can't. That's do my it. point. Yeah. So, but it's way, not conceptually yeah. impossible to do. Mm-hmm. You would just have to have a theory and enough data that's right. to look, be able look, to show thing it. Happen, we, this happens again and again and again, as you know. So one of the examples I'm most often pulled into is should you trade up in the draft? And on average, the the data say no, 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 trade down in the draft. But then forever. Every now and then. Yeah, every now and then. Of course, every now and then there is a guy worth trading up for. The whole question is, can you identify the guy or the one or two occasions that that, that deviate from the hundreds that you shouldn't? That's the challenge. But, by the way, this is this, the challenge, challenging statistics problem of the age. It's not just this is what we're seeing in sports, but this is exactly the problem we've seen in finance for years. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the problem we're seeing in genetics right now. Exactly, because the idea is that we have thousands and thousands of is genes. there a statistical solution? To well, it? we have all the in, in, in genetics. You have rep, rep, repetition. You have experiment you can do. So typically, what statistics is do, is doing is to identify a certain set of possible, if you if you will, games that where this is going on, and then go test them. So mm-hmm. why couldn't one do the following? This is what I would do just quickly if I were in a marketing situation. I would find all those situations after the fact where the model didn't fit. I would then develop a theory about when large residuals or large deviations are going to happen. And then I would use that as a now going forward. And maybe so you, you wouldn't do that. You as could, basic but science? isn't big enough. That's what probably football's not big time. enough. Yeah, exactly. Well, I got science time. is I got big time. enough. <laughs> yeah, you got time. Well, maybe we'll resolve at the end of our lives. Well, the so, end's a lot small. I'm going to tell you right now, that end's a lot smaller than the end I was talking about earlier. And there's hundreds of games, but go ahead. So before we go to break, your take on the AFC. We've only, we've only covered the NFC. Of course, it's the more interesting conference so far. I was going to say, my, you know. Pat, when I, Pats and Jacks. Jags, well, going, Jags going to Pittsburgh and take the Steelers down. That's a great game, actually. It was an interesting game because it was a great game. It was a game that the final finish was, was peered closer than it was. I mean, they were down two touchdowns at the end. I, I, what happened on that onside kick again? So they're 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 down, they're down a field goal. They yeah. they they score a touchdown with two minutes left. Right. down a field goal, and they they kick this. No, onside. they're down a touchdown. No, they're no, down they're a field, down a field goal. Forty-five, forty-two was the final score. It's the final, and four. it was more but than they, two minutes left because the two-minute warning yeah, also stopped the clock. It was like, like two nineteen left. Yeah, yeah. They, no, it was a questionable. But they were down a just, touchdown at two eighteen. And then they kicked a field goal, and then okay. the, and then the uh, and then the this the Steelers right. kicked a, f- a touchdown. That, they were down a full touchdown. That's right, that's right. But you're down a touchdown, so you need one stop and a score. Mm-hmm. Two nineteen. What happened right. there? They kicked an onside field goal, and they gave a field goal. Well, the, the onside field goal, the, the onside, onside kick, kick the onside did kick. not go the appropriate. It didn't go the ten yards. Yeah, okay, so just, it was just a, a bad, ex- bad failed onside a, kick. Do you believe it was a good call? I do. I do too. Okay. Because the defense hadn't done anything to stop these guys. Right. What's your take on Bortles? Bortles has been a questionable QB, and he goes in and, and leads a team to score 45 points against the Steelers. I, I, you asked me if my opinion of Foles went up. By the way, I don't think Foles is that bad. My opinion of Bortles went up. He played well enough in a big game. Somehow, some way, his team did score 45 points. At some point, you have to start. I remember, put this way, I think the Jaguars, I'm not saying this year. Can they win a Super Bowl 
with Blake. Well, Blake, if they won the Super Bowl, would he be the worst quarterback ever to win the Super Bowl? I'm I'm now not as convinced as I was before. I mean, who's, the, who's the standard bearer for that? Trent Dilfer and the Ravens? Trent Dilfer would have to be up there. I'd say Brad Johnson with the Buccaneers yeah, would have okay. to be up there. Yeah. Those guys would be there. You could argue Jeff Hostetler with the Giants. Oh, good. You know, Host- and by the way, similar situation to Foles is in. Sims was the quarterback. Not a whole, I mean, Sims was a great, not a great, a very good quarterback. Got injured late in the season. They brought Hostetler in. He'd have to be up there. So I want to make a confession because I think I overweighted, I overweighted quarterbacks in our conversations last week. And I hate that because I often push others to not overweight in college, though. No, 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 no. We were really talking about the way we were reasoning about these games. I was like, oh, Keenum, Keenum versus Breeze. I made it Keenum versus Breeze, which is so. It's so exactly the mistake people make all the time. I I also. But don't you think that's I, what people are doing? Now? Look, I, I was talking with my kids. Which one doesn't go with the other? Brady, Keenum, <laughs> Foles, and Bortles. Let's think about it. Brady, Keenum, Foles, and Bortles. Which one's not like the other? Oh, the guy that's been to the Super no, Bowl fun. seven times with five rings. Wait, don't you think that's the reason? Look, if right now you told me that Brady was on the Eagles, wouldn't you put the Eagles as the favorite to win the Super Bowl? I, I imagine I would. But they were the they were the favorite. No, look, they, they would have been favorite clearly with the mo- This is the point. This is this is exactly the point. They are the most important factor in football, no question. They they matter more in this sport than any other position matters in any other sport, no question. But yet we still tend to put too much weight on it. There's this interesting psychology. I think it may be kind of general that you- in a multi-factor problem, multi-variable model, psychologically we overweight the most important variable. We're not capable of thinking in these multivariable ways. I agree with you. I was just saying the effect size is huge because let's imagine the Eagles. Let's imagine it's still not as big as people think it is. But that's my point to you was that let's imagine the Eagles do play the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Let's just take it as an example, and I'll, I'll make up a number. Eagles, uh, Patriots are a seven point favorite, eight point favorite, whatever it is. If you switch Brady and Foles. I think the Eagles would be the favorite. So what you're telling me is that Brady's worth nine or ten points, and your comment is that's way too large. I, w- w- Brady's probably worth m- more than any other quarterback in the league. I don't know what that number is. We've got it somewhere in but here. But it's not nine or it. ten points. Oh, my claim is whatever it is, people think it's bigger than it actually is. That's okay. my claim. It might be nine. People think it's 11. It might be seven. People think it's nine. This is my point. And I and this is my confession. I fell I fell prey to that last week by putting too much weight on Case Keenum versus Dubreeze, and also too much I think on Nick Foles versus uh, versus Carson Wentz because we know that it's a big knockback. We and we know our models imperfect in capturing the difference between those two quarterbacks. But the market over and you should overreacts. feel good. You were right. Drew Brees totally outplayed Case Keenum, and the other team won the game. And the other team won the game exactly. So. Uh, thinking about a little bit of this uh, AFC, the, is there? I mean, do you, I wasn't even interested in the Steelers game because of the Jacksonville. I didn't believe in them. I still don't quite believe in them. Now they've got to go to friggin' Foxborough and play. Do they still play in Foxborough? They do. We're going to talk about these things in the last quarter of the of the of, of Wharton Money, but we've got three quarters to go. Come back and join us. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, especially if you're listening when it's not 8 to 10 Eastern. We're replayed four or five times over the course of the week. You can reach out to us 
on a Friday, on a Sunday morning, whatever, drop a question. We'll get back to you. We can also respond live, real time on the air if you if you reach out during the show. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically over the course of the week, keeping track of the world of sports analytics when we're not on the show. This morning, Cade Massey hosting with my buddies Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. We have just kind of beat to death the Minnesota game and especially the final play. In this half hour, our friend and frequent guest, used to be an in-studio guest with us when we were just getting off the ground, Neil Payne of 538. Neil, good morning to you. Hey, how's it going, guys? Going real fine, sir. How are you? I am doing well. It's a little snowy this morning in New York, but uh, made it through the commute, and I'm ready to go. It's the kind of snow that makes things pretty again, though, right? January morning in New York is not necessarily the prettiest thing in the world. We get this light, light snow, brighten things up. Neil is senior writer and general editor. That sounds like a new title, by the way. Promotion up there, Neil. General editor at 538. No, it's been that way for, for a few years. Is that right? All right. We just didn't notice it before. Neil, I saw something in your bio that I need explained. Um, we know you went to Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech. That's we, correct. I mean, what a fun offense to have that you're pulling for for the rest of your life. That's, that's good fun. It's like a 1980s, 1970s Oklahoma Center. Um, but you studied English, economic psychology, and this thing called STACK. Correct, yeah. What is STACK? It's an acronym, so ST. STACK is, is a defunct major now. I think they, um, they changed the name of it, but it, uh, it used to stand for Science, Technology, and Culture, which was a funny way of them just basically having a mix of, in my case, writing and math. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with that. I, ju- I went to Georgia Tech. Uh, you know, I grew up in Atlanta, and uh, members of my family had gone there as well. And so I kind of went into it thinking, like, oh, it's a good school. You know, I, I have always been, you know, associated with it. Not totally sure what I'm going to do uh, with, with the degree there, what program I'm going to go into. And I just kind of landed on that because it was the one that offered writing in addition to some sciencey stuff. And lo and behold, it ended up actually being a pretty good uh, description of what I end up doing uh, on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, it, as far as we're concerned, you're the model. You're the model for for working in this field because you you do write and do analysis so well. We 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 have you. There's many things we could talk with you about today, and we appreciate you jumping on. We know we we grab you relatively often. We and we quote you even more often. We ought to probably get a piece of that pay you're getting from 538 because we pimp you so much but no um, comment <laughs> um so we've wanted we've noticed this thing that 538 did from early in the season 538 is running this nfl prediction contest but they're running a more as you'd expect they're running a more sophisticated version of a prediction contest than i've ever seen before they ask entrants in this contest to give the probability that a team will win an nfl game every nfl game every week you give a probability which is pretty cool already and then they score you according to this esoteric academic um, evaluation called a Breyer score, which is a sophisticated way of looking at judging probabilities. Relatively sophisticated. My my colleague Audie Weiner is wincing. Come on, man! It's like it's lo- just a mean squared I error. No, but it's lo- it's long held. <laughs> it's proper scoring rule. The incentives are all oh, right. God, all God, that God. stuff. <laughs> anyway, you don't expect a big popular website like Five Thirty Eight to use Breyer scores, and and we want to advocate anything. We want to support anything. That that encourages people to use probabilities and think probabilistically. So, Neil, we're curious how what the experience has been with five thirty and what, if anything, you've seen behind the scenes, like in the data. What are you seeing? How are people responding? Have you guys dug into that stuff? You know, I have not really dug into a lot of the um, 
a lot of the user data on this. Uh, I would expect that at some point we're going to have to do some kind of analysis once the season is over just of like, what are people's tendencies? Uh, the thing that they're kind of picking against is our ELO model, which I think we've talked about in the past. Um, mm-hmm. And I, uh, one thing as I've been kind of going through and following it and making picks during the season has been ELO, I think, did not have a, a necessarily great year, and I don't know how common that is, but uh, it definitely seems like, you know, with just a little bit of knowledge of what the point spreads are and, and especially injuries, I think that's the big one. And maybe mm. this was a, kind of a dramatic year for quarterback injuries in general, so maybe that kind of shaded my, my interpretation of it. But I think one of the things that we'll need to do in the future is put in some kind of it, it, certainly quarterback injury uh, adjustment, if not you know something for even more of that using the injury report. Because, for instance, right now, you know, it thinks that the Eagles – uh, still have Carson Wentz, or maybe it just kind of looks at uh, start, uh, Carson Wentz, quote-unquote, starting in week 14 or whatever it was, and says, hmm, you know, Carson Wentz is, is playing a lot like Nick Foles uh, <laughs> recently, but I, I'm sure he'll be fine. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's good, and, and it kind of doesn't know to adjust for things like that. Now, Nick Foles, I heard you guys were talking um, going into the, into the break. Nick Foles has actually, like, done a decent job of approximating that uh, for the most part, and, and we'll see how that holds up on Sunday. But uh, it, it, it is kind of a flaw in any kind of system when you sort of just assume a team is a monolithic, you know, quantity and, and you don't take into account important missing pieces. Well, right. you know, but, it's, but it's a lot easier said than done. This is, I mean, and, and in football, you know, 22 players, 40 whatever 53 man rosters and all the possible injuries quarterbacks alone just consider one player quarterbacks alone difficult to figure out the right way to make that adjustment i mean I, i've been following e, uh, 530 it's use of the elo model since you began it and one of the decisions that you, you notice behind the the um one of the important factors behind the decision is you really want to apply this model universally across all sports back in time once you start tweaking the model, even in important ways, it becomes too hard to do that. Mm-hmm. So I always thought that the reason why you made it so simple is because you wanted it that to comparison. be simple. That's right. That, yeah, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's right. Like when Nate was sort of looking at it, one of the first things that we ever used it for was World Cup soccer, which, you know, they have results for all the matches going back to like the 1800s. Uh, and soccer is like such a notoriously difficult analytic sport. Uh, the, uh, to account for players, at least, and kind of their value. And so I think there was a certain charm in, hey, this is what, you know, Brazil's rating was back in the 1930s or whatever, and you could kind of pinpoint it on a given date what the – only using information, by the way, going, you know, up to uh, that particular date, what you thought the quality or would have thought the quality of the team was. And that's pretty useful for historical studies. So it is kind of, you know, straddling a line between – we do have more information for 2017 uh, teams, and and you're kind of choosing not to necessarily take that into account. But then it's really good for historic data because you don't actually have that much data that's extra that you're kind of right. leaving on the table right. for older seasons. Right. So, Neil, how, how many people do you have in this pool? I think it's about 20,000 so far. Okay, so about 20,000 um, 20, people are I one- just calculated about 30,000. Okay, so twenty to thirty thousand people. Neil, you guys are eventually going to dig into the to the players on the 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 entrance side, like the psychology of what they're doing, the patterns in there. We'd love to have someone back on the show to talk about what you see. We've done these kinds of studies, and you, but just not powered at twenty thousand people. Um, 
But it turned – so we, we have a good buddy who's been who's been entered in this thing, Joe Simmons, a faculty member here. I know what you're about to ask about. Well, you, well this is the thing. So a few weeks ago he said, hey, did you know Neil is like – in the 99th percentile in this contest. I'm like, get out of here. Cause you know, he's more than 99. Well, this was a few weeks ago. And then he, he texted, <laughs> he texted me this week. He said, he said, Neil Payne, there might've been some other colorful words in there. Neil Payne is leading the contest. So <laughs> we had you, we, we, we planned on having you on here, you know, weeks ago to talk about this whole thing. And now you're number one out of whatever, 20 or 30,000. I'm very people. skeptical. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I trust it's true, but I'm very surprised <laughs> because I, I would have thought you were too sensical to be number one. And the reason why, here, let me unpack that, yeah, yeah. is that in order to be number one, you have to make some pretty outrageous uh, guesses because you have, to ha- you have to be high in expectation, but you also have to be on the, the deviation side. To be number one, you have to make some really... Do something unusual. Do something unusual and, and, and uh, get more points. I mean, basically what that means is you have to be um, probably overconfident in games where the, the team is uh, supposed to win and, and put higher values. And, and you probably have to even take some risks uh, in, some, in some capacity. And that seems like generally not a good thing to do. I mean, usually winning a contest is very different from being uh, generally smart. So, Neil, this is just to build on Adi's point. Neil, this is Eric Brown. I want to ask you, what was your strategy as an individual? Because let's imagine, given 538 is running it and you're Neil Payne, let's imagine instead of being first, let's imagine you're near the bottom. Did you play this? Did you, When you were picking your numbers, did you play to win like any anonymous person would? Or did you have a different strategy? And secondly, given where you are now... Have you had a change in strategy? Because I'm looking at the website. You can say, based on my pick, here's how many points you would gain and lose. Well, you know how much you're winning by. Have you changed your strategy now, and what was your strategy at the start? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a little like going into Final Jeopardy, uh, how much you wager uh, on it. Uh, To go back to uh, the first questions that you guys asked, I mean – I don't think that I've really done anything that crazy. That's the story. I'm surprised as anyone that I'm in first place because I knew, I thought about it, especially for most of the season, because, you know, I wasn't thinking about who was at the top of the leaderboard. I was just thinking about ELO. And so I, we mentioned the flaws in ELO and kind of the things that it knows and doesn't know earlier in the segment. And my attitude was, you know, I don't know that much more than, you know, some of these sharp people. You know, I, I, uh, I know probably no more than the Vegas line. You know, that's the old, uh, that's the old kind of benchmark of, of picking things is the, you know, the wisdom of the crowds and the wisdom of kind of a very smart crowd. And so I just would look at the Vegas line, and I have a little formula that can convert that to a probability. It's not complicated at all. I mean, you can do that yourself. I think I wrote a story a number of years ago about doing that, you know, the process. I used that exact thing. I kind of gave away the the biggest calculation that gets done in this whole business. Uh, and so I just turn the Vegas line into a probability and then kind of just look at it and say, hmm, does this seem like a team that Vegas has been a little bit too high on or a little bit too low on in recent weeks and tweak it no more than a couple of percentage points each time. And I was content with just beating ELO because you could really clean up early in the season because it doesn't know about any of the player movement or any of the differences of the teams. It just uses last year's final rating and regresses it to the mean. Uh, and I figured it's going to get a lot harder to beat ELO as the season goes on. Uh, and in some ways, because of the quarterback injuries and everything, it was that was not as much the case. You could still find opportunities to sort of, you know, arbitrage against ELO where you know 
uh, about a certain injury that's important. And then, you know, I got to say, luck has played a role, especially with this number one ranking uh, the past couple weeks. I forgot to make a pick. Let me, let me look this up. It was, it was for one of the playoff games. I just straight up – it was Tennessee at Kansas City. I straight up forgot to make a pick. Casey, uh, of course, was favored at home. I would have put them down for, you know, whatever the, the, the line, number right? would have been. Yeah, based on the line or, or something close to it. Forgot to make a pick. That means that you don't gain any points, but you don't lose any points <laughs> in the case of an upset. And lo and behold, Tennessee won. Uh, that was a costly so, pick on the, on the, the Briar scale. Yeah. It was a costly pick. Not and, for you. And, and you, you. You played it right. No, not for yeah, me. Yeah. No, for the other people, you know, there are some folks that you can kind of tell these people are uh, at the top of the leaderboard, are, you know, attuned to Vegas and and probably do some betting uh, on their own. I, of course, would, would never do such a thing. Um, but no. In, t- <laughs> in terms of, you know, you, you can see who gains and who uh, and who drops based on, you know, like you know that they were uh, not giving the Eagles as much of a chance uh, late in the season after Wentz went down, uh, as Elo would have said, I wasn't either. And so it's almost like now it's formed sort of this lockstep where I'm not, you know, gaining points. The only way to gain points is to screw up. Uh, maybe you could call it a bold pick to to not make a pick on, on something like uh, that, that KC game. But that's really kind of the only thing now if they're listening to this and and you know they know that i'm i'm doing the the vegas thing and sort of not deviating that much from that then you know they can they can adjust their strategy to to fit mine but you know i'm just going to kind of keep making picks according to that to be honest i don't want to win because first of all i i the plan i think was for someone else to win, obviously, and and then to kind of bring them, you know, do a story where we where we interview them or, or something like that, and talk to them about their system. So in some ways, <laughs> it's like not good for, for me to to win, and also it doesn't look good. I mean, uh, you know, it makes it seem like there's some kind of untoward. <laughs> Uh, the fix is inside. in, right? Yeah, the fix is in. <laughs> no, nobody uh, would fix it. Nobody would fix it to where one of the lead writers wins. You'd fix it to where the lead writer is like second. Right, but, exactly. Yeah, you don't want to finish. It's going to look even more suspicious it. if you if you dive here. At well, the there's end, three at the games end, left. At the end of the, the typical game is like thirty. So we're talking to Neil Payne. Neil is Neil is senior writer and general editor at Five Thirty Eight, a regular guest on the program. Neil, one last word on this before we change gears. You're basically mm-hmm. talking about um, algor- algorithm um, adjusted judgment. You're talking about algorithmic guidance and i'm curious what have you learned about either the market or your own tendencies as you've had to as you've permuted you take this algorithm from the market basically and then permute it a little up or a little down what tendencies have you seen in the line in the market and what have you learned about your own tendencies and where you might have some insight and where you don't well yeah i think one of the big things uh, going back to a point that you guys were talking about before uh, the break was about quarterbacks i mean the line is so sensitive to changes in quarterback especially cases like you know remember when the bills uh, at midseason decided for some reason to start nathan peterman uh give him his first start uh, of his career and as soon as they announced that, I mean, the line for that game uh, went away from Buffalo so hard and so quickly. Uh, and maybe there's a little bit of an overcorrection there. I know that, you know, in the past, people, including me and, and a lot of others, have studied you know, how much is it worth when you put in a backup quarterback versus a, a starter? You know, how much of a drop-off is that? 
And it doesn't really seem to be that much. I think the number that Doug Drennan, uh, the great pro football reference blogger from, from years ago, found was like three points a game or four points a game or something. On average. Between like, right, on average from like a you know, good quarter. I don't know if it was Pro Bowl level or something, but like a, a, a one of the better starting quarterbacks uh, and then, you know, go to sort of the typical backup. That sounds uh, like not that much. I mean, it does make a difference, obviously, to your to your odds of winning if you shift the, the line by three or four points. But I think there is a tendency to believe that it's a lot more than that. Well, Neil, and, let me and, just ask you quickly. Yeah. It's a question I asked Kate earlier in the show. Let's imagine... Tom Brady was magically switched to one of the other three teams in the playoffs. Don't you think those teams would be favored in the games? Like, if the Jaguars had Tom Brady instead of Blake Bortles, are the Jaguars the favorite to go to the Super Bowl and win? I Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Especially, you know, you would talk about Tom Brady now with, like, a dominating defense behind him. So I think you would get into some of the particulars of the new situation or whatever. And Philly, you know, kind of had a Tom Brady-esque uh, quarterback and, and lost it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, it, makes a, it should make a big difference, right? I mean, you know, I think there is a little bit of mysticism surrounding the quarterback, and, and maybe there's a little bit of, you know, feeling like that's the only thing that matters and that shortchanges the rest of the team. But I do think that among any kind of single variable, aside from, you know, who's at home, that's, a, that's kind of a big one. And, and you could see that also in the, in the um, line is that usually uh, it would take a lot of big lopsided mismatch for the road team to be favored, especially in the playoffs. And I think there's data that bears that out, too, that the, in, in the playoffs, home field actually intensifies relative to the regular season. But aside from that, yeah, the quarterback is, is probably the biggest factor. Neil, that's great, uh, and we appreciate you being on the show. We, we were hoping to talk with you about this recent article you have up. It's a great article on the Vegas expansion hockey team. Yes, which, speaking of home uh, advantages. Huge, huge story out there, but we're out of time, so we're going to have to get, grab you uh, another time to do it. But let's just pimp the article. It's a Jan 16 article on 538 by Neil on the Vegas Golden Knights. People may not even know that there is an NHL Such a hockey team. team. But not only is there a team, and not only are they outperforming typical expansion teams, they're outperforming most NHL teams. So Neil's making the argument, he makes it statistically, that they are the best-performing expansion team across the major sports of all time. So a great it's story. It's not even close. It's not, not even, even close. close. It's, it's, it's nice numbers they put on there. That has been Neil Payne. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's Neil Payne, senior writer and general editor at 538. We are at the halfway point. We're still halfway halfway to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a snowy, snowy January morning. Just started about 7.30 this morning. A little light covering, good, appropriate, beautiful view. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen, our fourth founder, collaborator, is out and about doing Shane things. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton that's one 942 7866 1-844-942-7866. You can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also 
Follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is a way to stay on top of what we're thinking about and what our guests are doing. So, so during the break, I did a, a, a calculation, and I have to make a forecast that I don't believe Neil Payne can possibly win at this point. Oh, really? No. Gracious, it all depends no on, on what, his, what his opposition does. But basically, there's three games left, and one of his opponent has got to put all the money on three teams, just 100% on, on the three games, and just call it. And would and should crush him unless he does exactly the same thing, and that has a probability of a, at no more than say one in six. And uh, you're, you're, we're, we're talking about Neil Payne's five thirty eight NFL prediction contest. We were just off the phone with Neil in the last half hour. This is a contest of five thirty eight. It's been running all season. It's kind of a sophisticated prediction contest right. because it relies on probabilities. Neil improbably five thirty eight rider. Neil Payne is leading this contest despite the fact that 25, no. 20 or 30,000 people have entered. Audis, and going into the next to last weekend, three games are left. Audi is forecasting that Neil can't win. Well, I let me just make sure I'm clear. He can, but well, it's too low a probability. No, no, I just want to make sure I'm clear. You're talking about without coordination. Let's imagine all the people yeah. that are within a range of his all pick exactly the same pick. So you're not saying he can't win. You're saying a no, coordinated set no. of people. Not they, even someone's got to take a chance. No, but it's got to be more they than have one to be person. diverse. No, yeah, no, no that's wow. right. This is exactly. But I don't think it's an issue. There's about ten to fifteen people in the striking range. So but they're all. They're not all this. Well, they're actually going to be because they're at the top of this. We know that they're pretty sophisticated. Yeah, and Audi's saying, "Look, it's the the right strategy is to take take a risk, dial it up, load up all your points, and they may up all, all dial up the same risky That'll strategy. But but the also, same one. but all being sophisticated, they're going to try to do something different than everybody else, and so it's unlikely that everybody will use the exact same. Strategy. It's kind of like Final Jeopardy, but the problem is, is that is that. It's hard to I be like right. I like the line so, of the, thinking, but it's requiring, by the way, what you're suggesting is requiring, what people have shown people cognitively can't do, might be two or three steps ahead thinking. Because if everyone does one step ahead, yeah. they might take all the same risky yeah. strategy. And now you have to let's, say... Let's say this. It's probably the case that favorites hurt Neil at this point. Because yes. people are going to load up, they're going to load up on the favorites. And so it's less likely that he'll win this thing if the favorites happen, if it's chalk from here on in. All right. But that's Neil Payne. That's the next segment. We have a different Neil in this segment, guys. We have Neil Greenberg from the Washington Post joining us. Neil, welcome to the show. How you doing? It's the Neil Show, I guess. It huh? is the Neil Show. Neil and Neil, we're, we're delighted to have you guys on the show. What are the chances that you'd have two guys named Neil on a sports <laughs> analytics podcast, uh, radio show? Well, given who you two are, I'm afraid that may be not so surprising. <laughs> Neil, are you do, you do you office down there in D.C.? I'm not sure where you're calling from. Yes, I'm, I'm in D.C. Okay. So, so Neil is the staff writer at The Post. His beat is sports analytics. He, in particular, is responsible for the Fancy Stats blog, where they do all kinds of neat columns over the course of the year. He, 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 also, he also hosts Crashing the Net. Tell us about Crashing the Net, Neil. It's a, it's a weekly hockey show here on the local FM station, 106.7 The Fan. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talk about Washington Capitals, talk about the NHL, hockey stuff at large. Sometimes I, I get to talk about numbers, but sometimes not. <laughs> oh, oh, really? That's interesting. So, but, so you're on a... You're on a, you're on a on a regular station, and so you have to walk that line between just call-in radio, which is oh, of... I mean, I'm sure that they wouldn't they, they wouldn't necessarily care. I, I talk about some of the hockey metrics quite a bit, okay. Um, but it's you know it's a more traditional type show, a little more mainstream. Okay, you can also follow Neil. He's a great follow on Twitter at in Greenberg at in Greenberg. Neil, before we dive into what you're doing now, can you tell us a little bit about your path from? And I, really, this is just a way for me to plug your alma mater. From the University of Chicago, where you studied economics, to what you're doing now? 
Uh, yeah, it's probably just the most nonlinear path ever. Um, I worked in marketing for a while, crunching numbers for for um, email campaign type stuff, data sets, that that sort of thing. Um, and then I got the opportunity to freelance when one of the editors at the Washington Post saw something I wrote on Tumblr. Uh, I was just writing for myself and just trying to get some ideas out of my head. And um, was doing that for a little bit and then had a Twitter spat with someone on Twitter who ended up being the NHL editor for ESPN. Um, <laughs> and that uh, we had like a little bit back and forth. And then I got an email a couple of minutes later asking me if I wanted to write it up for ESPN. Oh, man, uh, you're encouraging spats on Twitter. I'm not sure if that's a good thing. <laughs> so I did, yeah, I I was such a jerk. Um, just it was he said something. And then I, I just happened to be working on something similar, and I had a whole bunch of reasons why he was wrong, and I let him know that. Um, and luckily for me, he, he saw it as an opportunity. So he bought me a freelance. Funny, he's now my editor here at the Washington Post. He ended up joining us here just uh, about a year or two after who, I did. Who and, are we uh, talking about, by the Mike way? Mike Hume. All right, Mike my Hume. Editor. Um, yeah, he probably regrets that. And then, <laughs> yeah, so so I, I was freelancing for, for ESPN and, and Washington Post for a little bit, and then I pitched Washington Post on pretty much exactly what I'm doing now. Not I was doing only hockey analytics for them at the time, covering the Capitals. But I, I let them know that I could do all sports, and, and they were amenable to it. And then Jeff Bezos um, bought the post, and there was some um, influx of, of resources, and uh, I was able to get hired full-time, and that's about two and a half years ago. Uh, well, we've been curious what impact Bezos has had, and you know, we could talk about broader editorial issues, but this is Sports Analytics Show, so let's talk about that. You know, you might think that an Amazon guy would – would advocate for more data science in journalism have you, as a data scientist or as at least a, a data journalist or have you felt the impact of that oh yeah without a doubt i mean there's there's a huge focus on the digital product there's a huge focus on analysis and and taking everything to the next step right i i always whenever i talk to students whenever i talk in front of of crowds and whenever they ask me you know what i do i i tell them it's very simple I answer two very basic questions, so what and what's next? And your typical game story will tell you what's happened and, and, and that sort of thing, but my job is to either put it in context or explain why certain things happened or didn't happen and what that means for the future. And I think that, that as an organization, we've definitely embraced that approach, whether or not they, they crystallize it the way that I do, but it's certainly um, becoming more uh, just more robust in our coverage from top to bottom. Well, that's I mean that's so against the countervailing tides in journalism that there is there's there are more resources, more jobs. You might have been hired full time because of this. I mean, it feels like quite the exception in the world of journalism, no? How do you mean that the um, job just jobs full time oh, journalists? Yeah, I mean we're growing. Um, when you know it's it's unfortunate you see a lot of newspapers and a lot of media outlets downsizing, but. We're we're actually growing. I can't. I, I we get an email every day about new positions, and you see new new opportunities in the newsroom, both at the staff level of where I am, editorial, um, the supporting in terms of graphic design, data analysis, video, 
um, audio podcast. I mean, we're it's really uh, a unique approach, and I think you know that's a testament to to, to Jeff Bezos and the direction here, of Marty Barron. Um, embracing digital and embracing the audience yep. and, and giving them, you know, what they want in a in a manner of how they want it. Yep. So, Neil, we're talking to Neil Greenberg of The Washington Post. Neil has the Fancy Stats blog down there, um, a, a, a data journalist in the sports world. Neil, you called the Eagles and Jags wins this past week, which a lot of people thought you were a little bit crazy on that. So where was that coming from, and, and how have you updated now that we're on this side of it? So at the beginning of the season, I think you had me on the show either when I started rolling it out or, or soon after, um, we we decided to create our own – well, I decided to create my own power rating and, and for the NFL, and I based it on a team's actual win – win-loss record, what I would expect a win-loss record to be uh, based on the points scored and allowed, also known as the Pythagorean win probability. Um, and, and and during the season, I would regress the, and I still do, I guess, I, you regress the, the win-loss to account for the small sample size of games because, you know, when you only have 16 games, it doesn't really tell us a whole lot. It tells us something, but not a whole lot. Um, and then I, I average those out to, to try to get a sense of what a team's true talent is and then knowing what one team's win percentage is versus another and, and adjusting for home field advantage, you can you can give a probability for that team to, to beat the other team. And it's kind of funny because the Eagles, as you, as you said, were, were underdogs going in this game despite being the number one seed in the NFC. It was the first time ever in the history of the NFL that a number one seed was an underdog um, at home as the number one seed. And a lot of that was probably due to Nick Foles being under center instead of Carson Wentz. And when I was going through the numbers, even after you discount for that, um, I still had the Eagles winning. So, how, but how do you but how do you discount for that? It's the, that seems like the whole game last week was to figure out how much of a discount to put on Foles after. Well, you the the offense definitely takes a step back, right? But I think I, because people say you know people people feel that the quarterback's the most important position in football, um, so they have a tendency to overvalue how much that impact is. And I talked to some odds makers in Vegas, guys that run sports books before, and I and I this was back when uh, Tom Brady was was suspended, wasn't suspended, and going through the whole Deflategate thing. And I was asking them how many points is a guy like Tom Brady worth in in the point spread, and they said it, that he'd be worth about five points, and he would probably be the most like so if you took him out of the game the point spread would move the most for Tom Brady and then everybody on down from that so i got to thinking well if if Tom Brady at most is worth let's say 5 points to these guys that that literally put their money where their mouth is the the change from Carson Wentz to Nick Foles while it looks like it's a big gap probably isn't that big um, and then when you factor back in home field advantage, when you factor in how good the Philadelphia defense is, when you factor in just what we've seen up until this point, and it, it, the numbers just came, came out to be that the, the Eagles were still favored to win. 
And um, I don't know how many people had it, had them to win. I know I actually did uh, Philadelphia radio before the game, and they were very surprised that someone from Washington, D.C. was picking the Eagles <laughs> because a lot of the Philadelphia media weren't. Right. And uh, that was actually really surprising to me. But, uh, look, it ended up working out, and um, I ended up being right. What about on the AFC side? We talked a lot on the show last week about the Jags going back into Pittsburgh after having won that game so decidedly in, in Week 5. We were trying to figure out how much should we – even consider that a game that happened the, the regular season game one game it happened whatever it was week three, five three months beforehand yeah. it's surprising to have picked the jags going into pittsburgh i mean we we had the jags the massive peabody system had the jags i don't know 14th or 12th best in the league or something yeah um you know again it it's the, the, these one games don't really throw me that much i i don't i don't put a lot of stock into into just one game so i guess for me it it, it's just one data point in what well, we, what do we have like 16 at that point, 17 at that point. And, you know, it's look in, in hindsight. Yeah. I picked the Jaguars, but it was kind of like right church, wrong pew, because, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought that the, um, that Ben Roethlisberger would have been able to throw for 500 yards against the best pass defense and like a historically good pass defense in the Jaguars. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the defense Defense means something, and when you have when you have a defense like Jacksonville that can pressure the quarterback, um, that has a secondary that can cause pressure, that can cause coverage sacks, that has a secondary that can make interceptions, um, and then you look at Ben Roethlisberger, how he performs under pressure. Right, I want to say his his passer rating goes from like a hundred something down to the the high sixties. You know, that's a that's a huge advantage as well. Um, and then if you force them to run, well, then you made them one-dimensional, and, and, and that helps you in, in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, so I, even with um, Antonio Brown in the game, you know, like you said, I still had, had the Jaguars coming out on top. And, um, you know, it's, it's something <clears> – <throat> they say defense wins championships for a reason because – it travels well, and and it can hold it on. You hold, hold now. You're now you're just saying things, Neil. Come on, now you're <laughs> supposed to be the data journalist. We've we've looked at that travels well thing, and I, I wanted it to be true. And I don't. We just don't can't find evidence of it. Right, but 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 that's. I guess that's what I, what my point was is that they they say defense wins championships. They say that it travels well, but the matchups matter, right? And in this particular matchup, just with how everything came together, um, the Jaguars ended up being favored in my model. All right, so we don't want to make too much of two two picks. We, we congrats on all that, and 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 we like your system, but we we do. We're now all the more curious. What what do you think is going to happen? Surely you're not still on that Jaguar train, but more importantly, what do you think is going to happen in the NFC Championship? So you're right. I I have New England um, at a 66 percent chance to to beat the Jaguars, which would imply like a four point favorite. Um, it's probably a little bit higher than that, uh, only because I did a story the other day how. Um, Tom Brady actually performs better against some of the better pass defenses um, than he does against some of the worst ones. Wait, that's that's I mean that's remarkable. What, what that did... is remarkable, and and the headline actually is Patriots Tom Brady is a freak. Um, <laughs> okay, because it's uh, why would so that look, be? I'm sorry. Why would that be? Uh, my, I don't know. My my guess is that maybe he. He does step up in the big games. Um, maybe they game plan a little bit different, knowing that um, that the defenses are better and they have to alter the game plan to get him more, uh, to get him higher percentage chances. I'm, right. I'm not really sure. Right. Um, but when I looked at it, I looked at his uh, QBR rating, which is a rating that ESPN does, 
um, against the the top. He's played four top ten teams um, in terms of pass defense. He's had a seventy eight point eight QBR against the bottom ten, and so like something like sixty one. So I mean that's a that's a really big difference. And then you look at how Tom Brady um, works under pressure. I mean, he's got the the second highest completion rate under pressure this year. He's first in quarterback rating at 96.1. Um, he's a guy that can certainly beat the secondary. He's a guy that can certainly um, certainly has experience. Obviously, not only in in the NHL and the NFL in particular, but in the playoffs. And um, he's a guy that could certainly pick apart Jacksonville's defense. One of the matchups I'm I'm especially interested in looking at is the Jaguars in pass coverage use their linebackers quite a bit to to try to stop the pass. I have a feeling that that's not going to work as intended against Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski. Um, so I just I I do think that New England wins this one um, for sure. What about here in Philadelphia? This this is a good game. Um, and I have Minnesota winning uh, 54% win probability. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, this is another situation where people don't know what to make of Case Keenum. Right? I was I mean, about to a, ask you what you, what you make that, of him. Yeah, it's, he's a guy that, that hasn't done anything up until this point. And you look at his his numbers. I mean, ESPN has him as the the second or third most valuable passer in the league this year. Uh, the game charters at Pro Football Focus uh, loved what he did. He was fourth in adjusted completion percentage, which takes into account drop passes, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was ninth in deep passing. He was eighth under pressure. He was fifth on play action and passer rating. I mean, this is you want to talk about being put in a position to succeed. Uh, Minnesota is doing almost everything right to get Case Keenum in there. And oh, by the way, the Vikings' defense is a monster, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, their front seven's big, they're fast, the secondary can support in, 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 against the run game. Um, they don't allow big plays. So this is, uh, this is a defense that I think uh, can, can make some stuff happen. And uh, I think that could be a bit of a problem for the Eagles and uh, Nick Foles under center. Mm-hmm. Do you think either of the NFC teams would give New England a good run? How would you feel about those matchups? The Vikings would, for sure. Um, right now, I have the Super Bowl chances at New England Patriots number one at 34%, uh, Minnesota second at 30 so, Oh, wow. Oh, you know, wow. It's, it's, it's for, in my model, it's pretty close. So I would think that, uh, one, Patriots versus Minnesota at I guess you'd have to call it half home field advantage. I'm not really sure how you would you would account for Minnesota. Half, half may be right. That sounds playing right. in the, in the Super Bowl. So um, in Minnesota, I think that it would be a really close game, and I think Minnesota is uh, they're they're very balanced, and we've seen we've seen balanced teams you know take advantage of the Patriots before. Um, so I I do think it's going to be New England versus Minnesota. Maybe New England has a slight edge, but man, that'd be a great Super Bowl. So Neil, this is Eric Brother. Just a quick question. I just want to sure. make sure I clarify. So if you have the Vikings at fifty four percent to win this game, yeah, but thirty percent to win the Super Bowl, doesn't that mean you have to have them as the favorite in the Super Bowl because? Fifty-four percent times fifty percent is twenty-seven percent. So I'm just saying, don't you have the Vikings then as a slight favorite against the Patriots? Um, I might. I haven't done the the head-to-head matchups. I've just done the chance to win the Super Bowl from here. Um, but uh, I'd have to look. But it's it, the the challenge for me, and what I'm kind of looking at now is how do I handle the home field advantage? Not that it would make a huge difference. They would be the favorites on the if they 
if the Jags made it through, they would be. Oh, well, that's good. That's a great. Yeah. That's a great right, point. There's a one third chance under this model that that's the right. Jags. And that's so right. then that's they could be. A, a that's going to. It's going to give you a huge boost. So we're right. talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil is a statistics reporter at the Post. He's responsible for their fancy stats blog, which is a great way to pick up on good um, sports analytics on a regular basis. He also hosts the show Crashing the Net on the radio down there, talking about hockey, working in some. Hockey analytics into the hockey conversation. Let's let's get your take. Can you get us up to speed on the NHL? You're you've got a good beat covering the Caps the last few years. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, so so Washington was. I don't want to say that they were left for dead, but they they had some injury issues early in the season. Matt Niskanen, one of their top defensemen, went down, um, and they and they look and then Andre Burakovsky, a, a player that they relied on in the top six, um, went down. So they had some some depth issues. Um, but they've been probably the hottest team in hockey, or at least one of the hottest teams if you count Vegas and Boston, um, and they're now number one in the Metro. So they've really asserted themselves. We're seeing Alex Ovechkin have what I think is probably his best season to date, and not because he's on a 50-goal pace because he's had more goals than that before, but he's 32 years old. Right. And we just don't see those type of numbers from a person at that age um, in in the modern NHL. Mm-hmm. So it's been really really fascinating to watch. I've kind of given up on trying to figure out when when his downturn is going to be because it just doesn't seem to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so you have, obviously, Washington Capitals here, uh, late season run. I think the biggest story, though, might be the Vegas Knights. Vegas right. Golden Knights, so I mean, the expansion tell- team that's just one of the best teams in hockey right now. So tell us more about that. I think folks, if they're not paying attention to the NHL, didn't, might not have realized there's an ex- this, the expansion story out of Vegas is supposed to be the NFL, right? It's not quite expansion, but the relocation story in the NFL. But you've got this expansion team, you know, basically pushing the top of the NHL, not only not pulling the typical expansion team performance, they're actually vying for the best record in the league. It's I think absurd. they're, they're uh, either one or two in probability of winning the Stanley Cup. <laughs> yeah, they're they're very high right now. How does this happen? <laughs> it it happens through the expansion draft, and you, yeah, but they're you're supposed to pick up crappy players. In there. <laughs> well, you're supposed to, right? But um, you know, I think what happened the there were a lot of good players that were available in the expansion draft that perhaps people weren't expecting to to be available. And you got to give credit to General Manager George McPhee, who who used to be the the General Manager here in Washington. Um, he he did a great job of of selecting players, and he did a great job of negotiating deals to not select players. And you and you look at some of the the guys they have. I mean, William Carlson, twenty three goals. James Neal, eighteen goals. Um, they've just put together a, a really good team on the back end. They took Nate Schmidt from uh, from the Washington Capitals, who's one of the better passers in the league, one of the better defensemen, able to get the the puck into the zone. So they 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 didn't they didn't start off as an expansion team roster per se. They were able to build a a contending team. Um, and perhaps the biggest surprise is that for at some at one point they were on their fourth goalie in the depth shot because their goaltenders kept getting injured and they and they still kept on winning. So it's a testament to the coaching staff, it's a testament to the to the front office that they were able to build a contender this year, and they're a historically good contender. I mean, the the Florida Panthers were the best expansion team in the NHL so far with something about 80 standings points. I mean, Vegas might have that by next month. Right. So when you when when you dig below the one loss record or the standings points, do you do the do the do the more advanced analytics suggest that they are playing that well, or how much of this is just good luck? 
Well, it's not it's not all good luck. Um, they're certainly good at creating scoring chances. They're certainly good at um, limiting the, the chances in the, in the high danger areas. I would say if there's anything, um, you know, whenever you have a uh, you, you have these getting this good this fast, there's going to be some some guys riding the percentages as I call it. So you look at a guy like William Carlson, right? He's got 23 goals. But he's shooting 25%. That's abnormally high. The league It's almost three times the league average. So a guy like that is going to start to slow down. So they may need to 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 make up for it. But as I said earlier, their their goaltending has been has been kind of beat up a little bit. So now that Mark Andre Fleury's back, um, you know what they might lose on the the offensive end, they might gain a little bit um, just by having a little bit more reliable goaltenders in net. So I think that they're that that for right now you got to look at them as, as being for real. I actually do an NHL power rating as well that takes into account the uh, the actual record, but also their record what it should be based on expected goals for and against yeah. by using a shot quality metric. Great, um, and they're still up there. They're still a top three team. So this isn't a this isn't a, a situation where it's smoke and mirrors. You know, you compare that to to the Washington Capitals, which I have as eleventh, which a lot of people feel is low. But you look at their actual goal differential of plus 13, right. um, which is best in the Metro. You look at their expected goal differential, and it's literally the worst in the NHL at, like, minus 20. Okay. So that's, the model takes that into account. So obviously they're discounting them. But Vegas uh, doesn't have as much of a swing. So they're obviously they're one of the better teams in the rating. So, Neil, this is Adi Weiner. I was really um, – uh, I find the whole – experience of uh, of the Vegas uh, hockey team to be so almost surreal in the sense that expansion teams almost I don't think have ever hit 50% in any in any sport this is a, this is the sole exception what does it say about analytics that uh, you can assemble a team that's so so strong based on the dregs of all the other teams is it and there are two ways to look at it one side you can say um, it's genius on the part of the of the Vegas GM to to put it together. On the other hand, you can say there just isn't that much data about players, and or they were stupid on the parts of the other teams. Oh, stupid. I mean, there are two ways to think of it: genius on the GM, stupid, or there just isn't that much information, and that it's easy to make a mistake and let people go because you just can't tell. Where do you weigh in on these on these three possibilities? It's actually a little bit of everything. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that all these players are dregs. You look at James Neal. He scored 40 goals in the NHL a couple of years ago. He's had a couple. He's he's always been over 20 goals for the past, I want to say, seven seasons. So he's a bona fide goal scorer in in the NHL. He's probably had 20 goals in every year he's been in in the, the 11 years in the league. Um, so they're able to get some good guys. I think. Part of it is analytics, but I think part of it too is some of the teams got caught flat-footed because they 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 didn't they weren't aware that players with no trade clauses would and no movement clauses would have to be protected. And I think that that's where we saw oh, some teams scrambling in terms of well, if we have to protect this guy, you know, who do we 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 then now we need to expose another guy and hope they don't take them, or maybe they have to make a deal to, to keep them. So I think it's a little bit of everything, but. You look at how um, you know you you look at how uh, Vegas has been has been created. You know to go back to the Nate Schmidt example. Um, you know he's a he's a local guy here for Washington, but he was probably the second best passer on the team in terms of creating shots in the offensive zone. There's there's some people that track that sort of thing. And when Mike Green was uh, was let go in his free agent year, 
um, a lot of people, a lot of the analytics people looked at Nate Schmidt to be the one to kind of pick up that mantle of offensive defenseman. Now he was only here for a year before he was exposed in the draft and taken. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure those type of things come into play because that's how you win in today's NHL. Where do you put Vegas on the continuum in terms of analytics savvy? Are they, are they, are they leaders? Are they open? Are they skeptical? Well, um, I don't, I, I don't know for sure, but I would say just based on uh, McPhee's time in Washington, they're probably open. Um, he, he was definitely, um, he, he definitely embraced analytics while he was here, um, and I, and I know that they were, they were, they were, they were actually very good at um, utilizing analytics with video. And and that to me is is really where the rubber meets the road to be able to to integrate those two two parts of coaching uh, really lets you drill down into a teachable moment for the players. I mean, you never want to tell a player what his course he is, but you certainly want to be able to 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 look at the numbers, try to find some problem areas, and then instruct the and then go to the video so that you can have a, a teachable moment. So I would say from that aspect, they're probably pretty progressive. Neil, last question for you before we let you go: Who in the NHL? do you think are the leaders on the analytics front who if we want to pull Toronto Toronto Maple Leafs um, they they hired a GM out of uh, assistant GM out of the AHL who was uh, very progressive with analytics and turned that whole franchise around in the in the AHL mm-hmm. they they hired a bunch of bloggers from from the NHL blogosphere that were very into analytics they they fully embrace it it's it's why it's it's very public um, they probably have the largest analytics staff and the probably the best funded analytics staff in the NHL right now how big is that exactly well, do you uh, know I would say I know that there's at least five people there. Okay, just to give you a sense of context, the Yankees have like at least fifteen. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, but baseball, but but I would say the average, the average for the NHL Hockey. may be one person. Right. Okay. Yeah, the median so, might be zero. Right, yeah. Right. And for a while there, the Leafs were like scooping up all the data journalists or bloggers around the, right. and, and shutting them down mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. So is it yeah. Kyle Dubas? Is that the way you say his name? Yeah. The assistant GM. Is he? Is, how long until somebody hires him away? Uh, I, I'd be shocked if Toronto let him go away. I mean, he, the, Toronto's the biggest NHL market, and it always it always surprised me that they weren't. You know, there's only so much you could do on the ice, but they had so much money. I was really surprised that they never leveraged that into off the ice analytics and data. But yep. it looks like they are now. Yep. Um, I, I my guess is he's probably one of the the better paid assistant GMs in the NHL. And based on what there are right now, building something, um, I, I probably wouldn't see him leaving anytime soon. Got it. Got it. Wonderful. All right. Well, Neil, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning. We wish you the best with your work here. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. All right, man. That was Neil Greenberg, stats reporter for The Washington Post. You can read him in his fancy stats blog. Great way to look at sports analytics with, on The Washington Post. You can also listen to him on the FM radio down there, crashing the net. Twitter, his handle is at N Greenberg. That was Neil Greenberg, Washington Post. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Broadcasting, not broadcasting. What are we doing? Broadcasting? We're broadcasting. Broadcasting from the Wharton School Huntsman Hall. Sirius XM Business Radio Studio. Cade Massey hosting this last segment, co-hosting this last segment with my buddy Audie Weiner. We've lost Bradlow, who walked away somewhere. Had we to never, go to a meeting. We never had Shane. Shane's up in up in Canada. Shane's visiting the home country this yeah, week. Yeah, on his way to a meeting. 
up in Canada. Is a, a meeting. A meeting? There's a statistic. We call the meetings. St- in, <laughs> conferences are called meetings. Yeah, yeah, yes. The big stats meeting up there. Not a big one, but one of the, one of the big you ones. You know, the econ meetings were in Philly this year, and they got crushed by that blizzard. The, the whatever they call them, the bomb cyclone bomb or whatever it was, happened. The econ meetings weekend here in Philadelphia. It, it was just not that big a deal. Well, it was enough to ground a bunch of flights and screw up sure. a bunch of job day, market But it wasn't like lives. one of these three-day wreckages that you could have seen. So we have come through three-quarters of the show. We have open lines in this last segment. If you want to join the conversation, you can. It's one eight four four wharton one 942 You can also email us. We try to pick those up live, real-time in the show, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Also, if you're listening when we're replayed, it's a great way to reach out during the week. You can follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is the handle, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet during the week about what's going on in the world of sports analytics. Adi, we've talked a lot about football. I'm curious. You're, you know, we've kind of corrupted you over time, I think. We've uh, you have. You I mean, I'm, toward I'm, football. I'm, I'm absolutely enjoying NFL football in a way that well, I never used to. Well, as a Jets fan, that must have oh, been possible horrible. most of your life. It has been. There have been a few bright spots, not, never a victory um, in the end, but there have been some seasons where they've been competitive. What? God, I can't remember the peak. Jets. I mean, since Namath, what has been peak Jets? Nothing. There was the great Freeman McNeil era in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that helps. That was the that was the peak. I got it. I liked Freeman McNeil when we were kids. That's yeah, good. He had over two hundred yards in a playoff game. So, I remember that. Do you in these last four teams? Do you do you do you pull for the Eagles? Oh, local absolutely. Guys? I am an Eagles fan at this point. All right. I really have taken on the mantle. Would you of the consider home going to crowd. the game? I would consider it if I didn't have to blow thousand dollars. I mean, yeah. that, which I think is the is the secondary market price. Is that is it that high? Yeah, I think it's close. It's if you want to be decent. I mean, I, I just talked to to uh, one of our one of my colleagues. Who I think it was at four hundred for the horrible standing room. Okay, seats. Okay, so non seats. That those are getting up there. It's That's up a thousand there, bucks yeah. is a real ticket. Yeah. So, um, and it, it's the it's the. I mean. Have you been? To, you haven't. You probably haven't been to some big, big football games. I lived in Buffalo during Never. the during the run of four Super Bowls, and my buddies there were big Bills fans, and so I went to playoff games. I went to a bunch of that stuff, and it's a lot of fun. And I've been to fun. four Harvard Yale games. <laughs> That's it. That's so oddy. That is so oddy. Peak football going is Harvard Yale. You know, I I never went to a Harvard Yale game. I was in New Haven for six years. It was the same. Talk about conference meetings. It was the same weekend every year. Yeah. As our main conference, yeah. and so I was always out of town that weekend. But I mean, those rivalry call it the games, game. It's not even called you know, the, the big game. It's the, the game. The game we need to go to is is in Philadelphia every other Ar- year. Army so Navy, Army right Navy is the rivalry yeah. game we need to go to. All right, let's move past football because there's not much else going on, but there's a little bit else going on. Adi, any chance you had anything to say about the Australian Open? Almost nothing. I did. I did peek into the odds. I think Federer is is the substantive favorite yeah. at this point, uh, followed by Nadal, um, but but Federer much more than Nadal. I, mean. I need I need to know what happened to Djokovic. Why is Djokovic, because he's younger than those guys, right? I'm, a little bit younger. It's I mean, they're all a bunch of grandpas by the historical standards of tennis. But the natural evolution is, you know, the old guys are great, and then the young guys come up and they're ascendant, and it's and it's this monotonic thing where they take they, they overtake them, and Djokovic looked happening. like he was going to. He was going to. In fact, in fact we had some Interesting conversations forecasting Djokovic overtaking the number of uh, titles championship. So on the on Grand the, Slam titles on the on the women's side, all the all the women all the U.S. women got knocked out. I know that happened. So so Venus Williams, I mean, it's surprising she's still playing. But Sloane Stevens is having trouble since she's won since a few she years won. ago. 
it's yep. it's just uh it's 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 a it, for the U.S. side it's a slaughter on the women's side of the bracket. Okay, we don't have a lot on the Australian Open, but maybe next week when we get a little further along. What about baseball? What's going on in baseball right now? Well, there are two things going on in baseball right now. Uh, obviously, there's trades, um, and that's the only thing that anyone's paying attention to: is signings, the free agent signings. Uh, we haven't. I don't know. I was been away for a long time, so I don't know what you've discussed. I mean, there's a talk about the Yankees becoming again the, the feared, you know, monstrosity. Last year was a crazy anomaly with homegrown talent. Um, outperforming all the projections. They were actually a team you could root for. They were likable. Exactly. They were likable. And, and, and now they're now signed. They're they're, they signed John Carlo, which, which is just crazy. And they're talking about signing a whole bunch of other super. They have room on their payroll to go out there and, and just um, accumulate the best available talent. So I haven't, I haven't read this article, but I saw it alluded to. There's a piece by Yahoo, I believe, and they've gone into the economics of baseball and there's apparently dialogue among leaders in baseball about how sustainable the current model is. The model being we put these hard caps on these young, this young talent for three, four, five years, and then we arbitrate for a couple of years. And then as they reach like their peak and just beyond, as they start declining as players, they hit the free agent market and they make these big salaries. Does it, it's the, it seems odd. It, yeah, the compensation is so out of line with performance. And it's just kind of where they've ended up by the, the structure of this thing. And they're, you know, everybody's vying for their interest. And they've ended up with a real mismatch between performance well, and compensation. One thing, just to look backwards, when this were negotiated, first of all, they do arbitrate earlier. So they have six years of, of, a, of, a, of a schedule that are controlled by the team. And they do arbitrate. They have a... In the late, in, in the, the later late, years. in the late parts, so the yeah. first three years are super cheap. I mean, yeah. It's unbelievable. But then they can even, but wrangle, they can negotiate. They, hold on, but they can even finagle that so that they don't sign the guy until a month into the season. So they get they do that. And that's, year. It's crazy. But what's really changed, I think, in baseball, is the young talent is performing better than ever. Right. You didn't used to see this mm-hmm. historically. Historically, peak major league baseball performance happens in the late twenties, and it seems that we're getting peak performance way earlier now. Well, so and that's saying two different things. There's no reason to think that the peak necessarily would get younger with younger performance. I thought you were just saying guys are contributing earlier in their careers. You're saying the whole thing is it just it's hard to know because, as you know, data hasn't really accumulated yet. But if you look at the top talent, I mean, John Carlo is 29 years old and he seems to have had his best season he ever had last year, but he was struggling with injuries. But if you look at if you if you had to list the top players in Major League Baseball right now, they're not guys in their young 30s. In fact, speaking about trades, there's an article today in the Wall in the Wall Street Journal about the Giants who seem to be picking up players who were great five years ago and they just signed McCutcheon. Uh, Pan, uh, the Pando, Pablo Sandoval, um, Hunter Pence, Evan Longoria. These guys are thir- and they're thirty-one years old. This is historically I they'd one thing in baseball. If it was one thing, you, you don't sign the old guys. Yeah, well, you know, it's thirty-one is historically not a bad time for for player performance. It really drops off at thirty-three, thirty-four. But it used to be you'd sign a guy at thirty, thirty-one. You get you for an eight-year deal. You get three or four good years out of him, and then you pay on the back end. This is all shifting. I mean, and the, and, and the the model is really I don't in some level it isn't really sustainable, but it's certainly helpful for the for the teams because they can pay very little to a bunch of young guys and then get rid of them. They can't afford them. Mm-hmm. And then what about this this bidding that happens at the at the free agent level and the ability they seem to have some ability to force these. Well, here's another thing: the team that traded Stanton. 
basically choosing not to be competitive, right? And there, it, it, at least for some period of time, it's not clear, you know, how long that period of time might be. I mean, it, this reminds me a little bit of some NFL owners who say, yeah, you know, I can make money without winning conferences, and so I'm not going to try that hard. Cincinnati Bengals, for example. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, this is Jeter's, uh, is now part of management of yeah. the Marlins, and I don't think his long-term goal is to not win. Well, we, Jeter will be interesting to see how he changes. I think he's ownership. really thinking about winning, and I'm not sure that his timing is right, right? So they're going to have to pay an enormous amount of money for John Carlo when the rest of the team isn't really ready. And that really becomes an issue. Okay. Okay. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum and say, after these guys have retired, they're being considered for the Hall of Fame. This is the time of year when yes. these nominations come out. Well, it's it's very interesting in baseball. So the, the way the baseball is done is very different from the other sports. It's essentially an election by 440 or so baseball writers. And they each get a ballot where you're allowed to vote for up to 10 players, not more. Say so real quickly, how do you become one of those 440? I don't know. By the way, know. that's a lot of baseball writers. That's a lot. I Are have no 400, idea. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, look, there are only 30 cities in the country. <laughs> I think 30, there are more 30, than that. But I mean, 30, 30 cities I, you know, in the I league. don't know the process by which you are uh, you are offered a ballot. There's a writer's association. 15 writers per team. So what's interesting about this is that the writers, the ballots, most of the ballots are public by the time the election is announced. So in two weeks, we're going to know who's going to be elected to the Hall of Fame. At this point, over 200 ballots have been publicly announced, and another 100 will be announced in the next two weeks or so. Do you have to make them public? No. You don't have to make your own ballot public. It's just a choice. Do you do you do you time out as a as a voter? Do you, is there an age limit? A cap, as a voter, a I years? don't know how that works in terms of a voter. But there certainly is are a, there a bunch of septuagenarian well, voters that it, it's interesting because you have to now. So we have enough information. Nothing against septuagenarians. Nothing against them. We have enough information about from the public ballots to pretty much know what the public ballot is going to be at this point. And okay. I'm going to tell you what those are. And then, of course, is the the remaining hundred or so ballots that were not going to be revealed. Those are actually categorically different from the ones that, that are announced. And that makes it troubling. So it's, it's difficult. So at this point, we know everyone's expecting five candidates to make the Hall of Fame this year. And they are Chipper Jones, who's new, and Jim Tomey, also new to the ballot. These are... These are first. He's a Philly, right? To, former Philly, yes. And All right. Of course, Chipper Jones. Now, if Eric were here, he'd divide up Hall of Fame placement mm. into three tiers. I don't think any of these guys, these two, are certainly top tier. Yeah. Um, but they're. I don't think they're bottom tier either. They're they're first. So they're probably solid middle tier first Hall of Famer. First ballot Hall of Famer. It's a big, deal. That's it's a a big deal, deal, but they're not. No, you're not number okay. one tier. Sure, sure. So they're good. Um, uh, Guerrero, who's in his, I think, second or third year, did not get elected, p- passed, and he's looking like a sure thing this year. Okay. When the, you say looking, you're saying from the public so ballot. So this, the public ballot has him at about almost Is 95%. Like, these are like election returns on election They are night? election returns, mm-hmm. but they're not, and, and also like election returns, they're not random. And this yeah. is why it's interesting from yeah, the statistical yeah. perspective. The group who we're hearing from are not necessarily a random sample. Okay. If this were a random sample, we'd be done. We would, we would know the game's yeah, over right. because enough votes are in to, to know things with certainty. But it's not random. So uh, Guerrero's going to go in. Then, of course, there's Edgar Martinez, who, who missed last year comfortably, and there's Trevor Hoffman, who missed by just a tiny handful of votes last year. Okay. Hoffman, a, re- a reliever? He's a Pod- reliever. Padres? He's a, he's a reliever, and that makes it very difficult because relievers typically don't get the support of the widespread. He's the one of the— I'm going to guess probably, Padres don't get their support either. They probably don't. So he was to be considered the second-best reliever of all time. 
Trevor Hoffman. Okay. Um, and he's he's polling at about seventy eight. Can't imagine who he's. Behind. I don't know. And he'll come up you in a who's second. Where your Yankees? Yeah, at right yes, now. I am. But so his seventy eight percent is um, is a sure thing. And for the re- this is an interesting reason, because the those the the presumably older ba- um, ballots that don't get released, they they tend to um, be almost the same projected probabilities as um, for support for a guy like Hoffman than. Um, than the ones who've who made themselves public already. In contrast to Messina, so Messina's hovering right below the 75% mark in terms of the private ballots. He's about 73, 74%, which means that you'd think he has a great ch- chance of making the Hall of Fame this year. But if you've actually been tracking, you know he has no chance. So hold on, you're drawing a distinction between Musinas and Hoffman's? Yes. This is between starting pitchers and relievers? Well, it, yes, but it's because of the private ballots versus the public ballots. Right. The public ballots... Love Messina, or they they think he's most of them think he's worthy of Hall of Fame placement. The private ballots don't. Why? Well, we can speculate that yeah, he's just never was the best pitcher of his era in any time. There's all kinds of reasons to knock Messina. He was probably never even the top three pitcher in any given year. And they just and traditionally, you just don't want to vote for a guy who was never even the top pitcher in his in in a season. So that's a weird. You're 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 characterizing the difference between public ballots and private ballots with great confidence, but then that calls for some well articulated distinction. It's sabermetrics. By sabermetrics, Messina is wholly worthy of Hall of Fame. I now I understand. You're saying metrics favored candidates. That's right. Are, are the public is. Pro on, and basically, you're saying the private ballots are biased against the metric favorites. Possibly, and, and although, and they don't like, and and uh, and what do you so mean possibly. You told me you were we don't know confidence. for sure. I know that's, but well, of you're course, saying, but that's, that's a parsimonious explanation. Yeah, it is. It's a parsimonious explanation. So, is now do we have a story for why they make their they keep their ballots private because they don't want to face the scrutiny and the criticism of the ascendant sabermetric crowd? Yeah, I, I, that's potentially ish. And this is a big deal because um, we can see the interplay between between the, the historical valuation systems and the modern ones in the most valuable player voting, which is also with ballots. Mm-hmm. In particular, there were several seasons where uh, Mike Trout was clearly the MVP and he didn't win. And everyone in the sabermetrics community was throwing up their hands and saying, how could we not have elected him the most valuable player? He was clearly mm-hmm. the best player mm-hmm. by any modern metric, yet mm-hmm. he didn't, d- doesn't win. He mm-hmm. lost to, uh, to um, uh, Cabrera when Cabrera won the Triple Crown, which is a classic, classic metric and a not a sabermetric valuation at all. And then, of course, last year, or not he won, and everyone was saying, how did that happen? So there's clearly an impact. The sabermetric community has been making inroads into the more traditional baseball writer community. Mm-hmm. And so these things are changing. So Messina has no chance because he tends to have a very big gap between the private and the public, yeah. and it goes against him. So while he's close, he's going to end up in, in, so, in, with not enough so votes. you don't need to grant theories because you've seen voting on Messina in the past. Well, there's You're this just guy, extrapolating. It's, it's amazing. With it's this like, guy, it's this, again, back to the elections. Yeah. like last election... We saw him do bad in these precincts and good in this. It's, it's actually. This, so I have to make a shout out to this. Ryan Thibodeau. I think I'm pronouncing his name. He has a he has a, a tracker. He every public ballot comes in and he updates his website. Okay. And he has terrific data analysis and goes back for the five years he's been doing this. And you can just go back and look, and you can pretty much make very very sophisticated forecasts. And it's almost a sure thing that these five are getting in. Trevor Hoffman. Um, uh, Edgar Martinez, Jim Tomey, Flag Guerrero, and Chipper Jones. Now, next year, things are going to get good because the ballot's going to clean up. 
and we're going to have some space for guys like Messina to get to get I think to get into the Hall of Fame. When you say clean up, some people are going to roll off who've been on there a while. And Three guys are rolling off. What, how long do you get before you have to roll off? Ten. Is, ten, ten years. Ten years. Ten years you have to go. Dot. So Edgar has been chewing up votes and not making it. Guerrero has been chewing up votes and not making it. And Hoffman have been chewing up votes and not making it. We're going to get these guys off the ballot. And <laughs> guess who's coming on next year? Tell us. Mariana Rivera. <laughs> oh, God. And he's going to obviously be a first-round first, first round, uh, Hall of Fame. But he's... there's nobody else coming on that's going to chew up votes. Okay. So this is going to leave some space. Todd yes. Helton is the next best candidate, and he's really no different than Edgar Martinez. Remind us, what's the voting rule? These guys who are voting, can, how, how many can you put down? Up to 10. Up to 10. Up but people, 10. do we know what people do? Like on average, how many do they put on? Uh, on average, they do. The, that's the modal. The modal number is ten. Is it? Yeah, but okay. the average, of course, is smaller because there are many who do seven, eight, or okay. some who do one or two. So you're basically saying there's not much controversy this year. There's not. There's not kind of any close matches other than Musina, who you expect to be clipped between now and he then. won't make it. You, you I feel terrible it. about it, but he's not going to make it. Okay, but he'll, so he'll, he'll no make it drama. in the future. You're saying there's no drama. What about these tainted None. guys? So Clemens, Bond, Sosa, these guys. They're, they're at 65%, which is higher than ever. Okay. But there's also a big gap between their, the private and the public. The, the private doesn't like them. Okay. What do we know about these private ballots? Have we done metrics on private versus public? Who are the private ballots? Well, I don't know who they are. I mean, this is something for other people to potentially investigate. We know their names because they don't, they're not public. So what qualities? But what, what we haven't looked at what quality. We do look at how they vote. And you can see that they're, they're, they don't like the steroid users. They don't like the sabermetrics. <laughs> um, and that's, that's, that we know. So interesting. Yeah, we need to have those guys analyzed a little bit more. All right, but the one there's one player who's actually very interesting, and that's and that's um uh that's uh why am I blanking on his name right now? He's the the oh Andrew Jones, Andrew Jones, which was a longtime center fielder for the Atlanta Braves, who is barely making enough dent into the voting to stay on the ballot. You need to have at least five percent. Well, he's a first ballot guy. He's right? a first ballot guy. If he doesn't hit five percent, they're going to oh. toss him off. Oh, and he is one of the guys who has the strongest differential between the sabermetric community and the traditionalists. Ah. He looks like a middling possibility for an outfielder. But one of the things that we've learned from sabermetrics is center fielders are extremely defensively important, as much so as a shortstop. And you can't get much quality hitting out of a center fielder. This is something that the sabermetric community has discovered. Okay. And as a result, one of the reasons why Mike Trout does so well is he's a center p- fielder who hits who amazingly hits. well yeah, and he fields yeah. pretty pretty well. Yeah. But Jones is an elite defender. Okay. Who was never in Mike Trout's company as a hitter, but wasn't that far below. So the sabermetrics community gives him enormous number of credit for being a terrific fielder and a great hitter by any any long-term perspective right, view right and as a result sees him as a terrific candidate for the hall of fame so certainly more than five percent all right so you found some drama for us how close this is, is drama. how close is he on the five percent he's close he's barely over five percent now so the first ballot folks are interesting i mean how many will wash out on average i mean we've got i don't know 20 people first ballot players andrew jones Johan Santana, Johnny Damon, Omar Vizquel. Vizquel's I mean, doing some... good. I mean, he's in the 30s. Kerry Wood. We, uh, they're going to wash out. All but Vizquel are going to wash out. Vizquel is interesting because he's a shortstop who's known for his defensive prowess. And mm-hmm. I think this is the, the, the comparison between Vizquel and Andrew Jones is, is very interesting because historically people have always known that the shortstops are very important. And their defensive prowess has been strongly valued. I think historically we have underrated the importance of a center fielder. 
Got it. Got it. Terrific. Well, I'm glad you found some drama for us. I know there's not not much at the top. It sounds like give us again who you who who you and the other people who follow this stuff closely believe will be the five people with great confidence that will be admitted. Chipper and and Tommy on the first ballot, Vlad and Edgar and Trevor Hoffman will finally make it. And barely, Mussi- but he'll Mussi- make it. And Mussini will not, barely miss. He's got five more years to make his case. I think I think that next year, once things are open and you're looking at um you're gonna get two Yankees. Can't wait. All right. <laughs> we'll all look forward to that, Adi. All right. So on behalf of the host here, Eric Bradley, who had to slip away, Shane Jensen, who's in the North Country, Adi Weiner, my co-host and collaborator here in the last half hour in Cade Massey, thank you for listening. It has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Thank you to Danielle Bruno, sound engineer, running the board for us again this Wednesday morning, Matty Datz, the boss man, and Dion Simpkins in the back, associate producer keeping us on the straight and narrow. We will be back next time. Hope you can join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Delight.